This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, it's Josh. Hi, and it's Joe. And you're about to hear another great episode of The Movies That Made Me. Most of the movies we're going to talk about with Ed Solomon today are available at MoviesUnlimited.com. Yeah, don't waste your time streaming or looking for your favorites on TV. You can own them. Physical media, babies. Yes, go to the TrailersFromHell.com website, click the Movies Unlimited banner on the website, and you can buy your favorites from them or go right to MoviesUnlimited.com. Shipping is always free on orders over $50. Movies, movies, movies. This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Um, yeah, I feel like Ed, uh, slowly but surely, we have, we have, uh, we have met on every kind of electronic platform there is and yet to meet in the real world. I know it's pretty funny. I know. It's, uh, <laughs> I, do you mind if I tell that story about AOL? Cause I, I love it. Uh, you may not even remember it. I don't remember. It, so please tell me. So Joe, it's great. So do you remember like back in the early days of America online? Um, I remember I was on it early enough that I remember I'd been there for a while when they gave us all a free month cause they had reached their 1 millionth customer. And I was part of this online screenwriting community. And I was still at that point just struggling. I was working crew and, and writing scripts by night. I think it was before I'd even sold my very first straight to video piece of junk. And somehow, you know, we'd have these conversations of, you know, hey, I'm writing a time travel movie. What are great time travel movies to study? Because it's also complicated. And I love time travel films. And it is one of those things. And, and uh, uh, Ed, and we'll introduce you in a minute, Ed. Don't worry. We do we do, do that eventually. Uh, but Ed, Ed can back me up. It is, a, and I'm sure you can, where some people just get it and some people are just completely, I think it's like, uh, it's like cilantro. It's like time travel movies just don't work with them and they can't. They taste like soap to some people. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I said, if you want a movie that um, handles time travel beautifully, where they've obviously spent a lot of time thinking about it and getting it right, you got to, you know, check out Bill and Ted. And I remember Bill had also suffered from that thing where a lot of, I think sort of like thudding middle brows will go, well, it's about stupid people. So it must be stupid, which always makes me nuts. <laughs> and out of the blue, I get this email or AOL mail or whatever for this guy, Ed Solomon going, Hey, I saw what you wrote. Thank you so much. Nobody ever appreciates how much work we put into that. And I was like, knocked out. This guy's like a real screenwriter who is by the way, our guest. And, and we started really nice. nice correspondence. This has to be, what, what is this? Early nineties, mid nineties. Yeah, it was, it was AOL time. This so is that, very, yeah. That was whenever stuff eked up on your screen. I remember, but I, I remember, yeah. and I don't want to get you in trouble with people these days because this sounds different than it did then. But, but Ed went on a trip to the Soviet or no, it wasn't the Soviet union anymore to Russia. Yeah. And we had a live chat together. I mean, by, you know, by a text while he was in Russia. And I'm sitting here in California and we're typing to each other. And it hit me that like, this is it. This is the end of the phone company. This is the end of the world we live in. Because 
it's just a quick hop from this to being able to actually talk to each other. And what back then, like a five minute telephone conversation to Russia, I would, would have broken you. It would have been a thousand dollars. And here we are just babbling away about movies or some such shit for half an hour while he's in Russia. It was, it was kind of amazing. But um, uh, also at that time, I remember in Russia, uh, right at the time, and I remember if we were talking about this in our exchange or not, I found out I'd been fired for the first time from Men in Black, first of four times. <laughs> wow. I was there and we were talking and we were talking about screenwriting, you and I, and we were back and forth. And I don't know why, but you mentioned the name of someone who I won't, I won't mention here because they were fired a lot faster than I was. Um, but uh, you had mentioned the name of this writer and, and you had said to me, oh, he's doing some screenwriting advice. I don't remember what you said. He's doing online screenwriting advice. And I was like, oh, I'm going to look up this person and just see what he has to say. And it said about this person, he is currently writing Men in Black. <laughs> oh, is that how you found out? I was sent away by a person who also shall be, remain uh, unnamed to go have a break. Why don't you take two or three weeks? You've been working hard. Have a nice break. Uh, you deserve it. And I was like, oh, fantastic. I've got some time off. Little did I know they had given the script to another writer and had hired them for a few weeks. And that person what, a, what a lovely business this is. Yeah, Ed and I, yeah, worked, right? on, Ed and I worked on that picture for about a, a couple of days, I think. Uh, oh, gosh, that, <laughs> that's right. I still Joe, how did you find out you weren't on it anymore? Uh, well, I, I, was, I, I really didn't have any illusions that I was going to stay on it because it, there had already been a lot of turnover. <laughs> but uh, well, I, did, I, I just I so admired the idea. I remember. And that was a different version of the movie than actually got made. Yeah, we when Barry came on, we switched it to New York. Uh, yeah. He was like, okay, French connection, but with aliens. And I remember taking the entire story of Men in Black and rewriting it. This was after I'd been um, unfired twice, I believe. Um, and we took the story and I remember just transposing it and it was a fascinating lesson in writing for me because it was the same story, but set entirely different, not just different locations, but actually different characters because it was different locations, but the same story. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, different jobs, different occupations, same story, different plot, same story. Interesting. It was a really interesting lesson and it actually freed me up in a lot of ways to realize that, you know, you if if you if the underneath is working, if the if what's the subtextual is actually linked up, yeah, it it the incidentals are less important. Interestingly, I and I've it's the same reason I think that at, that when an actor can't remember your lines, usually it's bad writing, because even if it goes all over the place in in the scene, if it's following a deeper internal through line, mm. the actor can place it. You know, they can link it. They go moment right. to moment, but when they're having trouble remembering it, it's usually a writing problem. I have found that out. Oh, that 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 makes sense, actually. Yeah, yeah, because you you sort of know what should come next if it's working. Um, yeah, no, that's that's great. So Ed, I, uh, Ed has Ed has a new movie. Uh, oh yeah, we'll get to that. Don't worry. <laughs> we we got to mention it, and then we'll stop talking about it because we never <laughs> talk to people about their work here. Although we're going to end up, I'm sure. But yeah, it, it's got a 
a new movie out. It's on HBO Max. Uh, I say now, not as we record it, but as you're listening, um, it's No Sudden Move, uh, directed by Steven Soderbergh, written by Ed Solomon. Um, Autographed by Steven cast. Soderbergh and edited by Steven Soderbergh, but you won't find his name in any of those. God bless it. Yeah, he doesn't I, like to. He doesn't like to take credit. I, I love. Yeah, I, I always, I always have that moment where I'm like, wait, did he use a DP this time? You're like, oh no, that's his, uh, that's his, <laughs> his pseudonym. But it's 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 Don Cheadle and Benicio del Toro, and it's and, it's a bunch of really it's a bunch of really good actors in a really fascinating plot. I don't even want to give some of them away because I feel like there's at least one actor that you're not supposed to see coming that that pops up. And it does have Bill Duke, though, our beloved Bill Duke, who uh, uh, trails right. from Hell Guru, friend of Joe's, and we're trying very much to get up on this show. God damn it. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I've seen him, I'll put in a plug. Yeah, thank you. Well, yes. Um, and uh, I just I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, it's just it's wonderful. It's it's uh, it's right where I live. It's um Oh God, you know, there's one thing I want to talk to you about before we went on, or maybe I'll talk to you afterwards, that that having just done something that was set in that era that dealt with um, uh, kind of uh, um, black gangs of that era, uh, um, I'm, you guys did something so right that most people won't even notice, but we'll talk about it. I don't want to give anything away. Um, okay. But but thank you also for the other stuff. Thank you. Appreciate that. No, no, it's a blast. And of course the Bill and Ted movies. Um, and uh, God, the last one, I, I know it had to be depressing not to open in theaters, but I got to say Bill and Ted face the music came, came to those of us locked up in quarantine at exactly the right time. I appreciate um, that. You know, we were initially kind of disappointed that people couldn't see it in the theater, but I realized actually, you know what? In a weird way, maybe this was better. First of all, it didn't do all that well when it first came out. So most people discovered it as it went along, you know? So they discovered it on video or later on streaming and stuff. So there was that. And I thought, okay, also, it's kind of meant to be for families anyway. So in this situation, maybe it's not a bad movie to just watch in your living room. And, you know, I don't know, Joe, do you miss? The theater experience. Well, I, 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 specifically regarding this kind of movie, yeah. I mean, I, I think comedies are just funnier if there's other people around you. It's, it's a, you just absorb this, this vibe. That and it's, it's not that it isn't that it's, it's not that it isn't hilarious on its own. But anything that's funny is funnier when you're with a bunch of people. Yeah. And I, I can only remember when I saw uh, Night at the Opera for the first time. I was in a summer camp in Woodstock, New York. Oh. Yeah. And uh, it was packed house, an art, art house that they had. And there were people, the laughs were so, it was constant laughs. And, and there were some people who laughed so hard that they had to leave because they couldn't breathe. And I thought, this is obviously the funniest movie ever made. So then I took some friends to see it in Philadelphia at a theater underneath some trussle somewhere. And there were like five people in the theater. And it just sat there. And of course it sat there because the Marx Brothers used to take the material out on the road and when they were shooting, they would leave a space for where they knew the laughs were. Mm. So if you see those pictures on television, there's, there's a space where the laugh is supposed to go, but it's not the same yeah. thing. It's not, you're not even seeing the same piece of art because if you're not able to, if, if there's nothing there to fill in the gaps, then you're not having the same experience. And they've actually done studies about the pheromonal interaction that, that happens in a comedy which is why you're not supposed to screen, test screen a comedy in stadium theater. And for those who don't know, I guess stadium theater, meaning where your heads are, you know, it's really raked. So your heads are high above the person in front of you. 
apparently the pheromonal exchange doesn't doesn't occur in the way it does when you're actually closer. No, that's true. And also you're you're almost in your own oh. little box, you know. Yeah. So it's almost seeing it, you know, as a private viewer. And and I we we discovered the stadium theater thing quite early in my in my career that that you don't want to preview in a stadium theater. Oh really? Wow, that's that's, that's interesting. That's you just figured out without the science. <laughs> you just <got> <laughs> we just picked it up. <laughs> well, that's also you know it's mob mentality, and it's also why riots occur and why crowds behave a different way than a series of individuals. Mm -hmm. It's all the same thing. It's that we're exchanging chemicals with each other all the time. It's and to horror films, that's why I think horror films are better in a theater, just like, yeah. you know, comedies are better in the theater. It is all context with comedies, too. The more people that are laughing, it just... It's, a, it's spontaneous, you know, and it's yeah. catching. Well, it's yeah. funny, too, because I'm not, um, you know, I'm not a complete misanthrope, but I'm perfectly fine not spending time... You're a pretty good misanthrope. It, oh, come on. But uh, <laughs> but no, but there, there are times where, like, and it is at a comedy, at a horror film, or at a concert, where all I want to be is in the crowd. Um, and, and yeah, where everybody's sort of experiencing the same thing where like outside of this room, maybe, you know, we all have our differences. We all want to bash each other's brains in, but in here we are all laughing or screaming or dancing and singing. And it's, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's why we so do you're, this. You're a uniter. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, like I, I mean, I love the, like, like the Springsteen concert experience to me is, and I like his music a lot, but the concert experience to me is much better than like the televised Experience. Oh, that's because he draws the audience in. I mean, he's yeah. half the time they're up on stage with him. Uh, yeah. All right. Actually, now now I have to tell this story. I wasn't going to, but but you, you've done it. So uh, uh, this podcast just, just exists as a sort of a vehicle for for that's right. stories. You know, like yeah, Will Rogers. Used to be. <laughs> we'll get we'll get to Ed. We'll get to Ed. Um, but do you remember? Do you remember? Uh, oh no, you're you're East Coast. So when when Bruce is doing the reunion tour in '99, they opened the Staples Center here. It was the first bunch of shows, and he played four nights. I was there. Yeah. Okay, so I had tickets for every three of the nights, but not Thursday, the, the third night. And I had a friend who had a box, or a friend of a friend who had a box. Now, come on Thursday. And I went the first night and I looked at those boxes and I was like, oh my God, I don't want to be in that freaking box. And I went on Tuesday and, and I don't know if you remember, like every night he would bag on the boxes. Well, yeah, I was like, there's no way I want to, I do not want to sit in a room with a bunch of people in chairs having wine served to them during a fucking Springsteen experience. And so Thursday night, I went with a friend of mine. And we scalped tickets and we got great seats and we were going in and we were going into our seats and we had to pass the people who were at the end of the aisle and we're stomach to stomach. And I look up and I am literally rubbing bellies with Don Rickles. Why he's, and he's there probably with his family. And I looked at him and I just put my hands together and I bowed in front of him and Rickles went, move it, you hockey puck. <laughs> and we moved down the row. We sat down. My friend who's younger than me turns to me, he goes, what was, what was with that piece? And that guy's an asshole. I'm like, you don't understand. You don't understand what just happened. That was a benediction. <laughs> was a this benediction. is now going to be the best concert you've ever seen. And God damn it, it was. It was the best night of the run. So, uh, <laughs> but looking over and watching Don, I kept going, he's like, is, is Rickles going to be singing along? He was not singing along. Oh, that's too bad. That's too bad. That would have yeah. been amazing. That would have yeah. been a surprise and amazing. I want to see Rickles pumping his fist in the air, singing because of the night. That would have been... <laughs> <laughs> he, was a really, he was a really nice guy though so uh shit we're out of time but oh, um, yes. the movie yeah. the movie That's is no sudden move <laughs> i do i do have one question and joe I, I thought this would come from you but but what is the lens that he's using it's such an interesting thing there's this it's a sort of a fisheye it's a very 
minor effect. And well, you really it's, notice it's, it in the it's sort of shots. like an early. It's sort of like an early cinemascope lens because it's got it's got the mumps, which they used to call cinemascope mumps, which is that the uh, it stretches out the picture, but not necessarily on the edges. So the characters and the images on the edges tend to be a little bit squeezed, and so you notice it when the camera pans. Right. Uh, I was I was kind of surprised because it's I haven't, really seen, interesting I haven't effect. seen that effect in years. And yeah, it was very really uh, anamorphic from, from I think fifty five or fifty four, the year that the movie was made. Right. Which so I mean, it's it's to... very accurate to the time. Yeah. yeah. No, amazing. I loved it. And the funny thing is, the next movie I watched the next night was streaming, and we were having a glitch, and it was like this regular thing where it would just be the stutter. And I realized that you know, and, and I'm sitting there going, oh, it's an interesting choice. I'm like, oh no, I just finished watching a Soderbergh film. This is not a choice. This is my Wi-Fi is screwing up. <laughs> but because there's always these kind of interesting visual things going on in these films and you're, uh, um, but yeah, it, it really works in this and it's, uh, the movie's delightful. Um, and uh, I don't know if that's quite the word I would use. I, well, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, and it does a thing you don't expect. And again, I'm not going to remember anything you don't expect from something. And it's all so well put together. It doesn't have to do this. But, um, and I hate to say this because I love genre films and genre films uh, don't have to justify their existence, but it's also about something else as well. That's all I'm going to say. Is it, is it getting a theatrical too? You know what? I think it's going to get a qualifying in, in Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, theatrical, I think, at the landmark. I don't think. You know, I think it'll open just for that reason. So it, it's a, it'll work. there's there are so few venues in L.A. to run a movie now that, uh, you know, there's been, there's no more Pacific theaters. There's no really there's hardly any landmark theaters. I mean, the one on the west side is closed and, and gone. Uh, I think okay, the, right? the Monica fourplex is still there, but um, there's sad, yeah. it's pretty sad. <laughs> it's Hollywood. <laughs> you can't find a place to watch a movie. Uh, it's very strange thing we're going through, and I'm curious whether movies will come rollick, you know, rollicking back in the same way that I think. I wasn't sure up front whether I personally would be like the dog in the crate that got mm -hmm. so used to the crate that when it was open, I just wanted to stay in the crate, or whether I'd be the dog that just runs out into the yard. I think I'm the dog that runs out into the yard. I didn't expect that, and it seems like people, at least if New York is any indication. Uh, people are going to be very enthusiastically going out to things again. Will movies, will it be the same or will it not? Do you think we've trained people to stay home now for their movie experience? But I, I was really heartened by the um, resurgence in drive-ins during the pandemic and people sort of doing not, I mean, it was great that there were sort of quote unquote real ones. And in fact, I think, um, Joe wasn't, there was one week early in the pandemic where the number one movie in America was Gremlins, which was showing at a drive-in. So my mind's too. And, uh, but there were these sort of pop-up ones that were starting to happen. And it was just like, it was this need that people had, even if you're in a car to be experiencing things together, that, that actually gave me hope. Um, and in fact, yeah, that's right. And we had Joe Bob Briggs on the show the week, the first time that happened, the first week a movie, uh, was number one in America was playing at a drive-in. So he was very happy because, uh, yeah. um, but, and then I should also, I just want to think I want to plug is it's so amazing and, and I love it. And it's such a huge impact on me. And, and uh, in fact, the last time I talked to Ed, I called him up for advice because I was working on something that ran along these veins. But if you get a chance to, is Mosaic, you can still get the app for Mosaic. Can you not? And watch Actually, it. You cannot watch the branching. I, the, there's oh, no. two versions of Mosaic. There's the branching narrative version. Yeah. And then there's the linear version. And in Mosaic, we actually designed it to be branching and then cut it into a linear version mm. as well. We're doing a new one together uh, next year. And actually, I, the people listening can't see it, but you can see 
my boards. Oh, there, that's right. We're looking, all yeah. on a Zoom, but you can see behind me is that structure. And that then some branching there. Oh my God. <laughs> well, but that's the, that's the hardest. Kind Tell of. me that's your office and not your home. This is my office. It's a okay. little one bedroom apartment that I rent as an office. And um, uh, we, I'm just starting doing, we, I already wrote the linear version. This one was designed to be both. And mm -hmm. I'm in the process of doing the, the branching version now, if you ever want to discuss another time, whatever, we can totally talk about it. It's really an interesting, complex, difficult, but really invigorating process. Because to, to be forced to tell a story in an entirely different way, same story, yeah. in a, let's call it objective, where you, know, you, the viewer, are ahead of the characters because you're seeing, you know, you're cutting between scenes, so you know more than the characters know, versus uh, this fully subjective experience, which we're going to be doing. Uh, it's going to be a very different, entirely different, filmically, you know, story-wise, it's going to feel like an entirely different endeavor. Um, Fantastic. Uh, yeah, Mosaic was riveting. My, my wife and I, Nancy, and I watched the entire, whatever it was, eight and a half hours, I think in two days. Um, I really appreciate that. Yeah, Thank it was, you so it much. Was, it, was, it was wild. And yeah, I was working on something sort of similar at the time for a long time. We were, um, it, it sort of died when a new producer came in and went, well, because the thing with Mosaic, let's say for our listeners, and then we really will. We want to talk to you about the movies that, that, oh, that fine, you <laughs> I'm sorry I'm bothering you I'm by praising your work. I know people hate that. Um, but with I, Mosaic, uh, it, it was like you told a story and there's multiple characters and you could at various points in time branch off and follow one character down a road or down another character down a road and then go back and see what happened before and previously and jump ahead. Yeah, there was, was a very successful play called Tamara uh, that's right. that had been had done here in LA where the idea was that it's in it whatever room. Like mansion house kind of thing. And yeah. you just follow yeah. the characters into different rooms and they and, and, and you see different aspects of of the story and i knew some of the actors who were in it and they said it was really interesting to to play that kind of part in that way mm -hmm. the audience is just all right there in front of you yeah and you don't know when they're going to be following you or when they're going to follow someone else and i would imagine live that'll be terrible because like is it me is it <laughs> <laughs> just but, but this producer came in and he was like yeah that's great but why don't we give them choices and it was a project that i had spent years sort of designing and had written a feature script that we are now turning into one of these things and the idea was to do what you guys did, which is to follow individual characters down paths. And he thought it'd be cooler if like at every moment, the characters could make choices and change things. And you're like, that, you can't just do that. <laughs> you, it was, uh, uh, We're not so, doing like, I don't, there's the type that's more like you choose your own adventure where- Yeah, that's what they were trying to do. The story. Yeah. I mean, with Mosaic and the same with this new one that we're doing, which is entirely different. Yeah, perspectives on- it's really the same story yes. from entirely different points of view. So it's a different story or I say same plot or I don't know what you call it, right. same characters, but entirely different points of view. And, you know, and the new one will be in the inner lives of these characters in such a, to such an extent that it would be an entirely different experience. And as a writer, it's actually hugely uh, informative and helpful and doing oh, those yeah. work, so challenging, but, as we were, Steve and I were saying to each other, like when in your career, especially when you've been doing it for a while, do you get to do something that requires so many new muscles and so much rethinking of your suppositions about everything? Mm -hmm. And what a great opportunity to be able to just to grow, you know? Yeah, yeah, no, it's fantastic. Was, was, it, was it fun or was it 
weird going back and writing a you know 105 page narrative screenplay after doing mosaic was it you know it was a lot easier <laughs> yeah it was a more freeing oh, a lot easier than it had been before yeah yes it was easier yeah. than it had been before because um having been i don't say forced is the wrong word but like to yeah having it been this necessary to think about every character in your story as being worthy of their own movie and then having to think about how do you tell the movie from this point of view well, how do you tell yep. the movie from this point of view it, it there was something a lot simpler about forming one storyline uh you know there, there are other things that i like about longer stuff as you guys i'm sure are aware you know you can explore other nuances and different shades of characters whatnot but it, it felt like a relief to do um what was supposed to be a hundred page script. It kind of was about 118 or so, but yeah. Also, I, I actually thought, uh, no sudden move, which was originally called kill switch. Um, but there are sort of too many other things called that, but, um, I thought it was going to be just this kind of really simple, stark lean narrative. And I really was trying to write that. I didn't realize that it kind of is anything but that. Yeah, uh, but it was really I was really trying to have it be that, but whatever. <laughs> oh well, Ed, let me be the first to tell you you failed. I did. I fell. I fell on my face. How many many, it's a, there's so many characters in that thing, and and uh, um, yeah, you, you you they're so they're all so interesting. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's terrific. But anyway, we're going to cut all this because that's not why people listen to this. We want to talk to you. Um, uh, yeah, but no, it's great. We've always wanted to have you on the show, and and uh, it's great to finally uh, get you. Um, yeah, let's talk about. You want to talk about some of the movies that have inspired you and turned you into the creature you are today? Well, there's two versions. I think you know, one was as a kid, like what made me want to do it, right? And that's it's funny because when I think about that, I think God, they all occurred within a very formative period of my life adolescence and i don't know mm -hmm. joe is that for you too i mean when you're talking about i don't know the movies you i don't know for the movies you guys reference i'm sure you've talked about this on many occasions so maybe maybe you don't want to go there but for me i, I was when you asked me the question originally i thought shit they're like all within like a five-year period and most right. of them yeah. are comedies um you know the Woody Allen, the early Woody Allen movies, starting from Take the Money and Run and Sleeper and or Bananas Sleeper, Love and Death, Annie Hall, Manhattan, uh, you know the Python films, the Python Show, which is you know I mean actually I think the first Python I saw was maybe and now for something completely different the movie or maybe it was the that's episode. the movie version of the show that was yeah yeah which is basically the show like you know yeah. called the guy. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. And then, oh God, the first movie where I literally fell out of my chair laughing was Blazing Saddles. And it was also the first movie, I think, was that 72, 73? Like that? Four, isn't it? 74, I think. Yeah. Okay, well, that was the first movie that I saw on a repeat basis for a period of 
weeks every day. Uh, I just went, I remember actually falling out of my chair laughing at, of course, I was 12 or 13 at the time. So it was the fart, the, you know, the farting, the, the beans scene where they were farting. I just couldn't believe that they were farting. And it was so funny to me, but it made me, it was the first visceral, those were like the first visceral experiences of film that I had felt. And I actually remember my parents had a store. Uh, they'd opened a clothing store in, um, in a place called Princeton Plaza in San Jose. And there was a movie theater there. And I remember I went to go visit them at the store. And then my dad took me, there was a theater in the mall and my dad took me and it was one of the, I think it was probably Take the Money and Run. And what was the movie before Sleeper? Was that Take the Money and Run? It might have been. Uh, but I, think it didn't, I think it was Take the Money and Run. And then I think the second one was Bananas. So it was bananas then that we saw because it was the one before sleeper because then I remember my dad saying, Hey, Hey, you want to, you want to go see them that there's a, that guy's got another movie. You want to go see that? And I remember thinking that was the first time I thought, Oh, people make like, there's a signature to movie making, you know, that there are people who yeah. make movies and, and we went and it was like, Oh, it's the same guy. You know, I remember thinking, <laughs> uh, and, you know, laughing with my dad was a big deal. And that led to um, that, that sort of sense of humor, I think, is kind of what sent me into that certain realm. Um, those were the ones that I think that I truly emulated. In fact, Python might have been the biggest influence for me, uh, especially I remember making Super 8 movies when I was then 12, 13. We started making Super 8 movies. And I remember trying to do a version of like a Python sort of thing. So that was 73, I'm going to say. How did that go? <laughs> <laughs> it, was, I, it was probably terrible. I, re, I do remember a couple things. I remember being blown away that they would have characters from one sketch just walk through another sketch. So I know we did that. Mm -hmm. I, you know, we were, I'm sure it's horrible. I'm desperate to find if I could if, if they're I'm sure they don't exist anywhere but god I'd love to find those things if I could ever find them I don't know where they would be but yeah um so that, that that's like one version of the, like the early ones but like in the recent stuff um I've taken to like on no sudden move um talking to Stephen about hey what what are you thinking about what kind of form what sort of style and and we did it on mosaic which is he just said hey watch these movies you know we I watched a bunch of uh you know, early Kula films. I remember, you know, Flute and um, Parallax View and God, uh, uh, Sterile Cuckoo and what's it called? Love and Pain and, uh, and the whole damn thing and all the President's Men. Like, was just, Mosaic was nothing like it, but in I was like, what's the feel? Well, it's funny. Like, yeah, I can't, I can, I can, I can, I get that though. You're right. It's like, I, I wouldn't, I didn't get that from watching it. I didn't go, oh, there, but, but yeah, I can sort of feel what you're talking about there. And it gets me, it gets me into a certain mindset. And, and on this one, we watched, or I watched, you know, I remember Rafifi and Point Blank, Get Carter. And there was a, there was a Japanese film. It's funny. There was a Japanese film. I think it was called Black Test Car that was not available. I think it's actually on Blu-ray now, but he's like, there's this one film called Black Test Car from, I think it's 1962. You can't find it anywhere. I wish that you could find that and watch it. And I was like, well, let me look it up. And I looked it up. It had been, it was on YouTube. It had been put on YouTube that day by somebody. It's amazing. 
<laughs> I watched it on YouTube, tried to watch it again the next day, it had been pulled down. Literally wow. for one window, it was there. I don't even know who put it up. And I said, I just saw it. He's like, how did you see it? And I said, it was on YouTube. And that's why, oh, that's right. And then I went to go find it on YouTube to send him the link and it was gone. So for some weird reason, it appeared magically for me. Um, but, but sort of watching this certain style of film, it, it, I have found that, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't been that type of a person before where, um, where I, I used to think that if I watched movies before I wrote, I somehow would be influenced in the wrong way. But I've realized that you can get into a kind of mindset or it's almost like being in a key signature or a mood that you can write from and just like you stand on the shoulders and then hopefully take it in your own direction. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I do that too. You just sort of absorb a bunch of movies that, that you want to feel like, even if you don't want to steal anything from them verbatim, but it's just a way of yeah. getting into a mindset. Yeah. Um, by the way, I just, I just looked, Joe, there is a, there's now a Blu-ray of Black Test Car. Really? Um, uh, Black Test Car, The Black Report, and um, uh, at, the, at the risk of being shabby and obvious, you can get it at Movies Unlimited. Which is uh, our, our our sponsor? It just happened to be our sponsor. It just happened to be our sponsor. Of course, we we paid you to bring this whole thing up. That's right. That's right. Uh, <laughs> checks checks in the mail. Um, <laughs> you do. Thank. I want to. I want um, Are you going back to Woody Allen, or do you want to? No, whatever. Where do you want to go? Because I I had a question for you because I recently watched um, Love and Death again for the first time in a thousand years, and um, um, I'm relieved to say you're a little bit older than me, but not, not, uh, not, not, not enough. Um, <laughs> but you, so you were obviously you, I can't imagine, or I don't know, did you, had you read the, the material that that movie is sort of pastiching in this age? You're what, like 14 or something? No, that was my introduction to it. Actually. Yeah. So and have you, have you read the stuff that later I was, <laughs> it was like, oh, that's what he was talking about. I didn't need it at the time. That was one of the other movies. I think Blazing Saddles was the first and then love and death was the next one that i saw on repeat that was the that's like the first I mean, it might be because i was old enough to drive when that mm. came out so i probably you know could go back to the theater on my own although i went to blazing saddles a bunch and i wasn't old, old enough to drive but um i just thought i just it just seemed like he was doing something i'd never seen before it seemed to yeah. me Time, you know? Yeah, I don't think I even knew there was a, a material to be mined uh, that he was mining. But, you know, because I recently saw the, have you seen the, um, what is it, seven and a half hour Russian war and peace? No, I haven't. Cannot recommend it highly enough. It's it's streaming on Criterion. There is a Blu-ray. You can also get it at Movies Unlimited. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it's what is it? Is it seven and a half hours? Sorry, show? Say that again. Where can you get that? <laughs> Here you <laughs> The, uh, the uh, <laughs> um they're they're wonderful we actually we love them um no it's 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 three parts um i guess it won the oscar in 66 or something it was basically this is the, the bondock shock version right yeah and it's the soviet union going because who would there had been a version uh made in the west well there was the the, the you know the dealer version but that was yeah know, and it's like you know, these, I mean, these people have taken you know our crowning achievement the greatest novel ever written and they've they've bastardized it so you know, for the great glory of the Soviet empire, we are going to make a movie that is the greatest film ever made. And they spent, I think somebody did an estimate of like adjusting it to modern dollars and it's, you know, $650 million movie, the entire Soviet army at their disposal battle scenes. You can't believe that they're shooting with a helicopter flying over miles and miles and people blowing each other up. Um, all that said, the most amazing scene in it is a tight close up of somebody, but it's, it's unbelievably great. 
Uh, I missed it when it was in theaters a while back, but it is on Blu-ray on Criterion. It's so good. And then I had to like a week. Can you get it on Movie Unlimited? Uh, yes, yes, you can. Glad <laughs> to hear that. But but um, uh, I watched Love and Death the next week, and um, I it's guess it's considerably it, shorter. Yeah, but it, <laughs> but obviously it played in America, and of course Woody would have seen it. But it's amazing how much of uh, the visuals of that film he's he's kind of aping, and it's it's worth seeing if for no other reason than that. But it is also an incredible film. It, it will knock uh, you out. How did Love and Death hold up when you saw it recently? Uh, I really enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed it. I've seen it in decades. I'm curious, you know. Yeah. I have a lot of the comedies that were influential to me that they didn't hold up upon later viewing. But, you know, we changed, the world changes, et cetera. Yeah. You guys, where do you guys come off on this idea of, you know, the art, like, like, the art versus the artist and separating them. How, what's your stance on all that? Like, are you about to confess something? Or are we going to have to, yeah, have to burn my Bill and Ted box set? Is that? But people might not want to see no sudden move when I, after I say this, no, I, I'm curious, like, how do you separate the life of the artist and the work of the artist and what you choose to see and not see and that kind of thing? Well, you don't, you don't separate it because obviously the work of the artist is influenced by the artist's life and who the artist is. But uh, in our current, um, charged atmosphere, uh, where anybody who got a jaywalking ticket is now a suspect. Uh, you know, it, 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 there are people who have legitimate gripes against them, um, you know, who happen to be brilliant filmmakers. And does that mean that their movies aren't any good? No. Um, does it mean that they are flawed human beings? Apparently. Um, but, you know, that if, 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 if you hold true to that whole thing, then you can't listen to Wagner. I mean, you can't, there's a whole lot of stuff you have to deny yourself. Because the so. people who made it are not perfect. So that's the question. Like, is it true in other forms too? Because if a philosopher, you know, is a complete prick, do you just, you know, do you devalue their, you know, their ideas? I don't know. I mean, it's well, a, it depends on how much of it has crept into their 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 philosophy. You know, if their philosophy is let's 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 torture kittens, then obviously he's not. They're not much of a philosopher, <laughs> so they but, wouldn't have gotten too far. When, when we're creating things, you're theoretically tapped into some, if not higher self, other self. I mean, my, my sister-in-law has a thing. It's not unique to her, but she's the first place I heard it, which is, you know, uh, hate the jerk, love the work. And, um, you know, if I started, I mean, Ed, what kind of career have you had that it would be news to you that there's a lot of bad people in our business? <laughs> it's like, if I started only watching movies by people who are good and decent and kind, um, why I would just watch nothing but Joe Dante films all day long. <laughs> No, I know you'd be watching nothing but Miramax movies. <laughs> right. But, you know, but I think for, for our business, it, it, it was, I don't know, for me, the thing was more like, you know, early on, I knew that, for instance, Harvey Weinstein was a complete monster to work with. I didn't know the degree to which. And, and I kind of had a thing with my agents because I had enough friends who had dealt with him and just had miserable experiences. And it wasn't some kind of ethical stand. I was just like, yeah, don't ever put me up for anything with that guy because I can't. And then you find out how much worse he was. And I'm like, well, I'm glad I didn't work with him. But um, I'm not going to stop watching the movies that were produced under his banner. When he was well, there's there. another story today in The Hollywood Reporter about Scott Rudin, Scott Rudin uh, yeah. who is another, another gem, uh, who has you know worked on a lot of movies that won an Academy Awards. And, and he's obviously a, a great producer in the sense that he has produced all these um, Broadway plays that were big hits and he's got, he must have some sort of taste or talent, but uh, as a human being, he's a complete zero. So, you know, what are you going to do? I mean, even the people who, who 
collaborate with him uh, and have collaborated with him have have knowingly turned a blind eye to what they knew were abuses but they, you know he they weren't being abused so they didn't ever said anything and they're still working with him so you know you 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 can judge people somewhat by that by their association but the work is the work you know yeah in terms of just enjoying the work i i tend not to um it's like I, I assume nobody's living up to their highest ideals all the time and that their work is in some way a reflection of those ideals as opposed to their failings um but uh um yeah i i, I but yeah there's a whole like you're not supposed to watch people's movies now or read their books because they were terrible i where where it gets funny for me is like with someone like ayn rand who um apologies to our libertarian listeners but it's just such a silly philosophy and the fact that she was incapable of living by it herself i think is actually pertinent to the question there you know <laughs> it's um it's uh i think that's quite different than somebody who's uh you know a monster making movies about people who are decent at least they're trying to you know does that make any sense well but, with with art a lot of artists are very flawed humans and their art is their bridge to connecting with people or it's sometimes their aspirational self or yeah. sometimes who knows what, you know, and it is difficult for me. I think the question comes to, and I don't really, I didn't really have an answer when I asked the question, but as we're talking about it, I was thinking, you know, you can make a choice as to whether to give someone who's alive now, who's an asshole money or not. You can, you know, that doesn't mean that they're, you know, you're not making a value judgment on their art, you're making a value judgment on whether you want to support them, I guess, as an individual. Right. But the art is the art. I, I do tend to think, and you're right, if you're, if you're preaching something and acting differently, well, that's worth noting. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of great teachers are bad at what they actually teach, but they're great at teaching. A lot of, yeah. you know, shrinks are probably horrible, fucked up people, but are good at helping you with your issues so you know i guess it just becomes at the end of the day here's a real kind of wuss out uh, um, <laughs> thing but i guess it becomes personal choice right you no i mean if, if do you think alfred hitchcock would have made those movies if he wasn't the flawed human being that apparently he was and all the fears and the problems and and you know the psychoses and stuff that he had that that found their way into his work that yeah. managed to speak to generations of people well, go I mean, no. how many truly, I really mean this, truly, let's use the word actualized, you know, healthy, happy individuals make art. Like, Why I don't know. Why would they? What are they needed <laughs> for? It's like, they no, actually, it. seriously. Yeah, I, I'm with you. I, yeah. And also comedy, you know, I do not know any funny, really legitimately funny person who has a healthy relationship with their mother. <laughs> Although I will say, have you spent much time? Because through doing, I mean, I can make no claim to being any kind of, of, of horror person, a master of horror, least of all. But because I made one little horror film and do trailers from Hell and No Joe, and I'm sort of in this little thing, I, I've been invited to these masters of horror dinners in the past. And I have to say, I have been in rooms full of comedians and I don't need to tell you what that's like, Ed, <laughs> who have never been in a room full of just nicer, gentler, more well-adjusted, decent and generous people than when you're sitting around with a bunch of people who spend their life coming up with interesting ways to butcher human beings. It's really 
really interesting. Get out of our system. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I, I said that years ago. It's like I, 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 everybody who's ever given me shit, I have killed, um, and uh, they they don't know it. Um, but uh, I have I have done terrible. That's another things way of getting it out of your system. Yeah. Honestly, yeah, just yeah. get rid of the person altogether. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But um, yeah, but I don't know. It's I, I I don't I don't think there are absolute answers. And then the question of like, what if somebody awful, you know, creates something that inspires millions to do good. Well, that's the other thing. It's yeah. What's the trade-off, and what's it? You know, that that to me is valuable. You know, and yeah. how it, what's the collateral damage, and is it worth it? You know, yeah. what's the cost of uh, the cost of making the world better? You know, yeah. yeah. And then you realize there's no way to know the answer. So I'm going to enjoy love and death. I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, but but it did. What what I really liked about it though was um, watching it now. You know, and obviously, in the interim, I've also read the book, you know, a million years ago, but then having seen the film, what's interesting about it is it works so perfectly as it did for you when you first saw it. And I, when I first saw it, I mean, Joe, when you first saw it, did you, you were, were you familiar? I mean, obviously familiar. Had you read the source material at that point or? I was familiar with it, but I don't think I'd read it. I mean, it just works a hundred percent, even if you don't even know such stuff exists. You know, you don't have to get all the jokes for it. To well, there's work. not a lot of kids my age who are into Russian literature. Yeah. <laughs> but but that's it because I think there are some parodies that just you know function by you being familiar with with the material and then others. Well, that it, it enriches them, but it doesn't. You don't necessarily all the, think of how all the people who've seen Young Frankenstein and have never actually seen a Frankenstein movie. Yeah, you know, yeah. Um, I, it, it's run constantly on cable, but the old movies are hardly ever run. And 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 yet, Bell Brooks made that movie because he was enamored of the old movies, and so much of the imagery and the jokes and stuff come from specific references right. to the movies but now the kids who see these movies it's just a funny joke you know and i think in general in movies there, there's a tendency when things get overdeveloped especially in in the studio system for everything to be explained explain this more you know to, and i actually think audiences don't like that i don't think they need it mm -hmm. i think it's okay to have jokes that go over someone's head i think it's okay to have references that people don't understand it's okay for characters to be smarter than some people in the audience in certain areas and you know it's okay to have uh stuff you don't necessarily understand as long as you kind of are are viewing it in as long as it's done with a good hand and as long as it you know doesn't make somebody feel like bump out of the canoe so to speak yeah um, but i i think the audiences like yeah like, tell that I, to the I, audience I, research people that's right <laughs> I know, but I, I know. I, I think it's a real problem because I actually I remember liking the fact that I didn't understand all of what was mm -hmm. in those. I remember going, "Oh, there's a bigger world out there that I don't really know about," and this person does, and maybe one day I'll find out, or maybe you know, in you know, I would sometimes would look stuff up or go, you know. Now, of course, you just you look stuff up all the time. It's super easy. You don't have to go to your encyclopedia britannica it's easier, yeah no i remember as a kid because my dad was obsessed with altman films and you know i'm like what 12 years old going to nashville and enjoying it i couldn't begin to tell you why and i would try to talk about it with my friends and they you know look at me like a dog being shown a card trick but it, it did you just had that sense of as you say there's something more out there and it gave me something to aspire to someday i'll cut to see this film again and i'll understand it better so like yeah. that encourage doing doing comedies for studios is particularly difficult because after they've got seen the joke once mm -hmm. uh, then they've right, seen anymore. the joke it's not funny anymore 
And that's, oh, you know, that goes at the script stage. And it also goes after you've actually made the movie and you start showing it to them. And then they go, well, that was, that's, but you laughed at that last week. It was not funny now. <laughs> Do something yeah. else. The way, Judd, you know, that was the case when I worked on It's Gary Shandling Show, which was Gary's first show. before. First show, yeah. I worked on it for three years, I think, the first three years. And we used to uh, hold jokes back that we really loved. Those of us in the, in the writer's room. By the way, wow. some of the nicest people on that show that I've ever worked with, speaking of that, I wouldn't say they're fucked up individuals. I'm just, I would say they, they were funny and they were funnier than I would have ever been. Um, and really some great guys and women, and really wonderful people on that show. But we would sometimes, as a staff, if we had a joke we loved, sometimes hold, hold on to it. Because we were shooting, I think we were shooting Wednesday to Tuesday, or we might have been shooting Monday to Friday, but whatever like midweek would have been, whatever the Wednesday would have been in the shooting week, Gary would often tire of the joke. Mm. And uh, so we often would want to hold on to some of the better ones that we'd sort of throw out. Uh, they seem fresher, they, you know, and they kind of boosted it all. It, it, so it's not just, it's not just studios. I think comedian, I think everybody gets tired of a yeah. joke. Did that make you, that would make me a little crazy though. Like you have something brilliant and now it's like, well, come up with something that's almost as good and then put that forward as your best. I think that would <laughs> terrify. Well, it, you know, you're always coming up with alt in those rooms anyway, but, right. you know, uh, and it was always a crapshoot too, because it is weird. Like when do you hold something back and when do you not? And we, I mean, obviously usually you didn't do it, but, there, but it did happen. I remember a specific moment where we were told to do that and we did it. And it worked. And we were like, oh, hmm, interesting. You know, we're going to do this again. Let's always have a backup that we like at least as much, you know? So, yeah. Wow. And then um, I want to go back to Python too, because that was, uh, so you saw the, the movie first and then the TV series and then probably yeah, Holy Grail? Or... like that. I, I probably, I think I saw the movie. I don't remember what year it came out. Because the TV series was on PBS and it came it was released a little later than the TV show was released, obviously in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, so the, it was around the same time as the movie because the movie was sort of piggybacked on the, on the success or interest in the PBS version. So, yeah, it was, I saw, you know, I don't remember what, which was the chicken and which was the egg. And in, in that case for me, uh, and then I saw them at the Hollywood bowl in 79, wow. whatever year it was 80, whatever year. Oh, how was that? uh great and i um i remember going out to get popcorn and john cleese had come out into the back of the audience for some reason i don't remember why and i remember being i like bumped into him uh and looking up at how tall he was and watching him watch watch whatever that was i think it you know watch what for whatever reason i think it was a bunch of people Things were hanging, whatever sketch that was, hanging from the stage. I don't remember. And then uh, I couldn't believe I bumped into him. Um, spoiler alert, he did become my father-in-law later. Uh, <laughs> I was waiting for that shoe to drop. <laughs> yeah, I knew you were going there. I saw the look on your no, face. No, I wasn't, but as soon as you said. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I actually said, I mean, it was pretty funny. I said, I bumped into this. You know, and he goes, oh, that was you, was it? Oh, <laughs> so annoying or something. I don't remember, but yeah. Um, and then it's, it's interesting too, because in a weird way, I looked at it and I, I once said to him, 
it's funny because you, my father-in-law, and my own father were probably the two biggest influences to me in a certain way. My dad and I would watch Python and we would laugh. My dad knew that I wanted to be a writer by the time I was in like high school. And I remember he worked for an electronic for Sylvania. This was before he had the store. He worked for Sylvania. And I guess it was before high school. It would have been when I was like 10, nine. And I remember they had some, some TV show was using a Motorola, it was like a cop show. And I think it was made by Sylvania, like Motorola and Sylvania, I think were somehow linked, you know, subsidiary or something. And so my dad was brought down to be a consultant, you know, for the, then he, for the show, and he came back with scripts. And so we sat on the couch and we would watch like some pilot that was on that my dad had the script gotten, they gave him the script for, or this show and compare it. And I remember that being very formative for me, both sitting there with my dad, but also seeing, oh, words translated, humans acting them, saying them. And then uh, watching Python, and it's just funny. It was just a funny twist or ironic full circle thing um, that, you know, specifically the work itself, the Python work and the, the ability to be both brilliant and silly and ridiculous at the same time to be sort of erudite and highbrow while being unbelievably lowbrow and being yeah. unapologetic about it and the ability to break the fourth wall and the ability to include you the viewer into this idea that hey we're all watching a sketch show and yeah. we're performing it and you're watching it and let's just be upfront and honest about it that all seemed revolutionary to me because i hadn't seen goon show and i didn't see a lot of the antecedents i i right. didn't know a lot of Marx Brothers at that point, you know, I didn't really know the history of film. I didn't have access to the history of film. There was no video at that time. I didn't grow up in a film family. So, you know, everything was kind of fresh and imprinting for me at that point. Yeah. Did you have something when you were talking about that? I just remember there was a book. What was it called? It, it had some goofy title, but um, there was a Holy Grail script that got published. That was, I think it was the first draft of the script and then the shooting draft back to back. And the first draft was about, I still to this day don't know if it was put on or not, but it came out shortly after the film and it had graphics and they'd scribbled all over and it looked like you would want it to look, you know, it wasn't just a book, but like the first draft was about a, a, a suburban shoe salesman named Arthur. And then by the time they get to the last draft, it's, you know, <laughs> it's King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And, you know, uh, I wouldn't put it past them to have created a fake one, you know, as just a kind of a piece of, Art in a certain way. Yeah, but exactly. I actually don't know the answer to that. I, uh, you know, but I think uh, that was one of the first times I had ever read because the other the other half was the actual script, and I remember sort of reading it and realizing, like, yeah, it's all when you first start making that connection, you know, that those words are connected yeah. to the thing that you saw. It's uh, it's an amazing revelation. Hmm. I, yeah. Remarkable. It still is to me. I mean, I don't know, like, just the idea of watching something created and the idea of, you know seeing seeing it all come together or seeing people i mean to me the biggest thrill in the movie i hate when the movie comes out I, I don't like that i don't know joe how you feel about that or josh but like i i don't like it i like when it's all private and it's yours and kind of you know it's it's not it's it's not for public consumption and it's you know and people aren't judging it and i like when it the discovery of it and i my favorite moment so my least favorite is when it comes out my favorite is the 
first moment when the actors start saying it, when they're just rehearsing, when they're just breaking it down and, you know, just starting it. That's my very favorite moment. What are your guys' favorite moments in the process? Well, you know, when you're, when the movie comes out, it's like you've, you've, put, you've pushed your child out into the world and, you know, uh, it's, it's on its own. There's not yeah. much you can do for it now. I mean, not that you don't try and all of the time that there is left and sometimes they don't even give you enough time to, <laughs> to get the child ready. They just say, oh, that child's grown up, take it out there. <laughs> you know, we don't care. Yeah. Um, uh, my favorite part of uh, making movies is the editing because sometimes it's, it, that's where you really discover what you're doing, what, what kind of a movie you've made. And then, and then the, all, all on, on the directing side, all movie making is problem solving. So, you know, you're problem solving from the very first time you get on the set to finding locations and all that kind of stuff. But then when you get in the editing room, that's where the problems are solved in a different way, because unless you have a lot of budgets for reshoots or something, this is what you, this is what you've created. This, this is the stuff you have to work with. And sometimes there's a character who pops and wasn't supposed to. And then there's another character who was supposed to be the lead and they're kind of comparatively not that interesting. So now you have to find a way to rejigger your movie so that you can make the best movie out of the material that you've got. You have to perfect the movie that you made. And um, I think we all try to do that to some degree and, and we, we succeed in varying degrees. Do you find that film is more malleable in that stage than one would think or less? I think it depends on how you shot it. I mean, when you work for television, they insist that you shoot endless coverage so that the showrunners can come in and make the show that they've always wanted to do and wish they could do without the director and, and sometimes without the writer. Um, so that's not as rewarding because yes, the way I approach it is that I, ha I have an idea of what it should be like and then that's the way I shoot it and I try to do it in a way that they can't screw it up, but that's almost impossible. Uh, but at least you know that when they put the music on, it'll get better. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Do you do like, you have like a filmic lexicon that you're working from? Like, I know that this is going to be these, this type of, you know, these types of angles, this type of shot, this, this, you know, or do you just sort of figure it out as you're going? No, it's it? kind of, I used to do detailed storyboards because that was what I was taught when I worked for Corman. But uh, I, I, I relied on them less and less as I went on. I, it, it's basically instinctual. I mean, I know, I know what I want when I know, and I know how to get it. And you speak the language. And I know how, and I know how to make a decision, which I think is extremely important. And, and the crew can suss out somebody who's, who's dithering right away. And it's, it's not pretty. Yeah, that, that's a thing which when you, which I've always not been great at myself because I have a very visible process. And when I'm not sure about something, you know, it's, it's apparently more clear to people than I realized. But uh, would you, if, if you didn't really know an answer, would you give a decision? Would you give, if you didn't have a real decision in your head, which do you like better, go red, white, or blue, you know, in this? And you didn't really know, would you? I'd say, I'd say, I'd say, what do you think? Or I'd ask the DP, or I'd ask somebody who, who, who cared. I mean, I don't really care what color the car is. <laughs> you know, it's not, I'm not into cars, you know? And it's not a, it's not a statement about the character. Oh, he's wearing, a, he's, he's driving a, a flashy red car, so he must be a flashy red guy. I, 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 I'm, there are many more important things to do than to respond to every decision that they ask you to make. With actors, what about an actor with a you know a choice? They're making a choice that you know 
Will you? Oh, that's that's fine. I I I think the I I, I let the actors generate. I, I I like to have them <laughs> adhere to the story and the script, but I uh, I I let actors do what they want. And 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 one of the reasons that I've worked with so many the same people over and over is because you know you have a trust factor, and they know that you're if they do something wrong you're going to stop them, or if they overplay, or if they're not getting it, and because that was what you did the last time. You know, and if you've cast the movie correctly, you don't have to do a lot of directing. I think, by the way, I would put casting the category. I would put in the category of casting, casting your designers, your your writer. It's all cast editors. Everyone is your casting, and then I have found in situations where I'm trusted to do my work, I do much better work. Absolutely, and everybody does, and that's the whole point because people actually feel like it is their movie because you're letting it be their movie. Because you can't yeah. make it without them, you know. You you can't make the movie without makeup. You got to have makeup, so you got to have sound. You got to have it. When these people don't know what they're doing, and and unless you've hired really substandard people, I mean, they're going to do a good job because they want to do a good job. Yeah, I liken it to I used to go river rafting every year. I loved it, you know. Put in on one day and like go down the river and sleep on the river and go down the next day and the next day, and I noticed. There's a difference between newer river guides and more, and more confident, experienced river guides in terms of how much they would actually paddle. And mm. the, the less experienced ones were just in the water with the paddles all the time. The more experienced ones could really read the river and just knew when to put it in. Mm. Like sometimes they just dip it in, move the boat a little, and then the boat would follow the, you know, the tongue or whatever you call the sort of crest of the river. It would know where to be. And I've always admired that. The more I've worked with different people, I've found that the people who do less micromanaging seem to be in more control. The, the least controlling directors are actually in more control in certain ways. There's more confidence. They inspire better work around them. And then their decisions are respected more too because they're, they're not making micro decisions all the time going, you know, or, or trying to micromanage something. Right. I mean, they always, I mean, as you know, you're, you're having to make a billion decisions of directing. This is... <laughs> If you're if you're an alien who's never seen a movie set or a movie before and you were plopped down to watch a director at work, you'd think, well, this is just someone that everyone asks questions to all day. <laughs> what are they an expert in that is happening here? Do, do you find Ed, that that um, it's funny? I think about this a lot lately where like because uh, I love writing things that I haven't written before. And I find that like, you know when you sit down to write your first, let's say car chase, it's very exciting. The first time you're like, what can I do? What has been done before? How can I change this? How can I do this? When you sit down to write your 53rd car chase, especially if you're really good at car chases, it's just this muscle thing. And it, you don't have that, that passion and enthusiasm, but you can do it just as well. It just doesn't feel as exciting. Does that make sense? Yeah. I try to avoid that. I don't, I don't, I, I can't write from that, that position. Personally. Yeah. Like it has to be, something different for me that, that, um, yeah. I don't know. And then I, I also, I recently just had the, the greatest creative experience of my life where, uh, I got to write two seasons of an audio drama that, uh, called Bronzeville, um, an amazing cast, Lawrence Fisburne and, and, uh, Amari Hardwick and Tika Sami, just incredible cast. And the time frame was so rushed. I had three months to write something like 600 pages Wow! and there was barely any time for notes and everything was writing on it. Plus you couldn't use visuals. So it was absolutely terrifying. And it went by so quickly that I didn't get to be overly familiar with it. So that I actually had the experience of when I heard the finished thing of almost being surprised 
which I feel like is the thing we all get into it for and we never get. Like, Joe, have you ever gone to see a movie that Joe Dante directed and, and been surprised at what happens next? I mean, it just doesn't happen. And you made the film because you wanted to see it, right? Sometimes the projectionist drops a reel. That's always <laughs> <laughs> And you're probably the only person in the audience going, amazing. Everyone else is like, shit. I don't know. You know but, my memory isn't as good as it used to be just because I've been doing this a long time because I'm older. And I actually find it to be a fascinating thing, which is I will work really hard on some on a scene or a sequence. I'll be like in it and in, in a deep way. I won't have as good a memory of it three days later when I'm reading oh, it. Oh, yeah. Which actually, it's interesting because it's like, oh, I'm reading it slightly fresher. It's it's kind of. In the, in, in the early part, I would remember it all, and it was almost like I'd memorize it. It was harder to break out. Right. Of I find it easier to be critical of my work now, interestingly. Also, I've been doing it long enough, too, that I know how, hey, if this isn't working, let's make something else up that right. works better. And I'm not, as, I'm not as clingy to stuff. I'm not, my ego isn't as invested. I work probably harder. And when I say my ego isn't invested, I mean I care deeply, but I don't right. take it personally if it, as much if it's not working right. which was always a big problem for me um in the past you know well it's funny because that goes to like I, I think i've talked about at least once before i my i came to i think the only working definition of success that makes sense for me um via my grandmother's alzheimer's uh because i think the last time i saw her i had just finished directing this little low-budget movie and you know she remembered who i was and everything and, and she's like how are you and i said grandma i just directed a movie and she was so happy I'm just overjoyed because she knew how much it meant to me. And then 10 minutes later, she asked, how are you? What are you doing? And I told her I just directed a movie and she was so happy all over again. <laughs> and I thought to me, like success is you get to a place where you're still functioning. You can't remember anything. And there's a shelf of everything you've done and you take it down, you read it or you watch it. And you're sitting there and you're going, this is great. Who did it? <laughs> like, that's it. <laughs> I would love to be in any situation where somebody every 10 minutes tells me how great I am. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're on the right show. Now. That's right. You're on the right show. <laughs> yeah, we should talk about, we should talk some more about these movies that made you. Um, but uh, um, wait, so you said, uh, um, wait, did he mention the, yeah, he said the Marx Brothers, right? No, he did Marx Brothers. He did Monty Python. I did Monty Python. I, I, I was not at like, I didn't know the Marx Brothers until later, until video. Okay. Able to get. Um, so Blazing Saddles and Holy Grail both did a similar thing in the last 15 minutes or so of the movie. They just broke out they of what they up. were doing. Yeah. yeah. That blew me away. I, you know, in Blazing Saddles, when suddenly they're on a studio lot and they're just, the whole movie falls apart and yet it keeps going. Same with, with Holy Grail or whenever that Try was. Try seeing it in the Chinese theater where they actually jump, they actually run out of the Chinese theater while you're <laughs> sitting in the Chinese theater watching the movie. Is that where you saw it the first time? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so wow. <laughs> Yeah, that, like, you know, all the things that where people seem to be with confidence breaking what appeared to be rules. Of course, they weren't really breaking rules. They all made sense within their yeah. own rule frame. But at the time, the, what I thought was just this bold and unabashed desire to just to just go for it. And the fact that. I, I don't know if it was true, but it seemed to me at the time that they were having so much fun making it. It mm -hmm. seemed like, and from talking to the writers of the Python films and the writers of Blazing Saddles, it seemed like they actually were having fun. They were really making each other laugh. And I mean, to your question, Josh, about like, 
sort of doing the thing you're used to doing. I mean, I think it's the death of comedy and it's the death of writing when you feel like, oh, I got this. As soon yeah. as you, at least for me, as soon as yeah. I think that, it's over. And I try to keep myself out of that place. Like, you know, I've said this in the past, but like, you know, like outside my, just outside my comfort zone, but within, I guess, the wheelhouse, you know, whatever right. that is. Like, how do you just keep yourself pushing? And, and those movies to me, to this day, I can also feel people really trying to push themselves. And in fact, Bill and Ted, which is how I met Joe actually, was that script. And um, way back, I was a freaking kid. And we were doing an improv group to just work out and push ourselves. In, not in front of an audience. We didn't want an audience. We just rented a theater once a week, like a shitty, cheap little theater on, on uh, Sunset Boulevard, the Gardner stage, it was called. 20 bucks, I remember we paid per night when we rented, like once a week. And we were just trying to like push ourselves in the ways that we perceived that Woody Allen was doing in films like that, Mel Brooks was doing, the Pythons were doing, just trying to see how far we could go without breaking the seams, you know? And it was, I mean, a lot of failure, of course, and a lot of stuff that just, you know, would never fly. But, but you know, it was how we discovered the characters of Bill and Ted. We just, it was a random day and a random, you know, just a random, I mean, wouldn't call them sketches. It's not like we did sketches. We just would just do shit and start- Fuck around with characters around and then yeah and we were not doing what a lot of you know ucv and groundlings people do which is we weren't trying to strip mine characters to then m make a pilot or a tv show or a movie out of we were just trying to explore and those movies we often referred to as the the sort of touch points for us of what in a the most aspirational way possible we would like to even get close to of course never really did, but at least they were, a, you know, they were a guiding the North star, so to speak, you know? Yeah. And, and I think it was the fact that it felt like they were making each other laugh. And from what I got to know about how they did it, that is what they were really trying to do, truly trying to make each other laugh and make themselves laugh. And that to me is the best comedy. That's like the only yeah. time with comedy, but even with stuff like no sudden move, which is obviously not a comedy, um, but it was a real challenge to me to write because it's not in what, I mean, Stephen, I have to say to his credit, giving me the shot on mosaic, which was because we had done a little 10 minute demo, uh, version, not of that story, but we worked together to try and create a little short to see if the branching thing would, would work. And he took a real shot on me with mosaic because it's not something I was quote known for doing. Um, so we're back to the thing about when you're trusted, you yeah. really step up, but also no sudden move was a new sort of style for me too. And the fact that he trusted me, he and Casey Silver trusted me to do that was hugely meaningful. And so the challenge of doing it, I took really seriously. And of course, I'm sure you remember the, these moments, I have them in every project. I was like, there was a moment where I just didn't know what I was doing. Like, didn't know what am I doing or, here? 
Yeah. yeah. Oh my God, they're going to all find out. There's always that. There's the imposter thing. <laughs> They'll find out at last. That's at last. I feel that on every project. <laughs> there's I've always a part. That. The thing it always feels to me like there's always, and it's even if it's something just writing for myself, there's at least a week where it the whole thing feels like I've taken a car apart and all the pieces are lying on my floor. And I yep. suddenly remember I have no idea how to build a car. Because cool. having never done this, I will guarantee you it's easier to take a car apart with a screwdriver than to put one back together. <laughs> I know that. I know that. That's what it feels like, right? It's true of almost anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I think that's probably uh, the, what is it? The second law of thermodynamics. So I don't yeah. know. I'm, not, I'm, I'm sure wrong. I'm sure I'm wrong, but uh, um, after I said that word in things, the middle, things fall apart. Me anyway. So, um, no. The, uh, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sure like, for me, there's always that moment where I'm certain that this, I can't do this. And the only thing that's different now is I, I've done that enough where I, at least I can go, hey, hey, dude, yeah, <laughs> this is, remember last time you felt this, this is that. I'm, but then in my brain, the dialogue is, no, 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 no this one's different. This one's right. different. This, this one's always different. different. This one's always different. It's always yeah. different too. You know that deep down in your heart. You know you're lying yeah. to yourself. This is the one you're gonna fail. <laughs> yeah, and and I remember thinking on no sudden move. I'm gonna have to say to Steven, I just don't think I'm gonna handle on it. And then story. Then I figured out what the story was gonna be. Right. You know, like what it was, and I was like, oh, thank God I didn't make but, that. But call. he didn't he have a story in mind when he came to you. He wanted to do. Uh, Initially, we were going to do a bigger kind of heist movie that was going to take place in many parts in the country. And then we started throwing some ideas around. And then he was like, you know, actually, let's do a, something smaller. Let's set it in Detroit and let's make it, you know, as I was saying before, like a more streamlined, like um, uh, really stark. Like initially, we were talking sort of 70s noir feel. And it sort of it evolved into more 50s noir feel as we decided we're more setting in the 50s. Because it has kind of a, it has kind of a desperate hours feel to it. Very much, yeah. That was one of yeah. 10 movies I, I, I watched to sort of get in the mood. Um, uh, you know, there was, I think I was mentioning, you know, some of the others like Rafiki and, you know, Get Carter, Point Blank, I remember, you know. The, the Which desperate hours did you watch? The original or the remake? Yeah, yeah, the original. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, he, he, when we were talking about it, what he wanted to do was like three, like we, let's do three, three guys who've never met paired together on a, we talked initially a heist, but then it became this sort of like a desperate hours, almost like this babysitting gig while they're going to watch, uh, this family while one of the people goes and takes something out of a safe while the father of the family, the husband takes something out of a safe. And it goes drastically wrong. Like that we knew. And we did a, um, a series of little of meetings at his office, you know, a couple hours a day for a week or so, uh, throwing ideas around, talking about stuff. And there was one point where he even wrote some random dialogue, kind of as this is the tone. Not like don't not like these are scenes to go in the movie, but more this this is the, the feel. Tone. Like, yeah. yeah, the feel. And some of that is in the movie. You know, there, there are some pieces of each of those that are in the movie. Um, but that was great for me. I loved having to, you know, having that to work with as well. And when I, then I started to do, once we decided we're setting it in Detroit and we're going to, it's going to be these, you know, this, this 
prime that goes tremendously sideways and the, all the repercussions after that. I started thinking about, well, what would it be the backdrop? And two things kind of hit me close to the same time. One was I was doing some research and realized that in, we knew we were writing for Don Cheadle as well, by the way, we didn't know who the rest oh, of the right. cast would be. So I was like, well, what are the issues, what's going on in Detroit at this period? And well, of course, what ends up being the MacGuffin in the film was one thing that was happening. I won't say that because it would sort of serve as a spoiler, but it, uh, yes, I was going yeah. to stop you if you did. <laughs> yeah, thanks. And then, um, but the other thing was the backdrop of the, just the evisceration of these African-American neighborhoods that were thriving, that were torn apart, basically raised, bulldozed to, uh, to put freeways in. And the, um, the, the change in America that was happening uh, as the auto companies and gas and oil companies and tire companies were pulling up the trolley tracks and you know, making the freeways, basically building the suburbs. And that's not really a huge part of the movie, but it's the backdrop. And in a way, it's like the need of it to me. It's the ether, I guess, through which the movie. Well, it's in, it's in that small group of movies and, and it kind of, it's all there. It figures less um, uh, prominently in, in yours. Than it does. I was trying to think of something else. It's a different city, but um, Chinatown and Roger Rabbit were the two movies that came to mind where, you know, kind of films similar era, kind of using using stuff like that as a way of getting into a great kind of crime story. Well, talk about the North Star. I mean, Chinatown yeah. being, you know, aspirational for, for all of us, yeah. and, you know. Um, but yeah, yeah, I, I personally liked that it had that element. Like for me, that just made it a little meatier. It gave it gave Don's character, I think, a little more um, sort of moral imperative. And um, it just I found that more, you know, a more interesting dynamic and the set against the, the, the racism that was happening at the time, especially in Detroit at that time, was hugely racist. So the idea of having these two characters, one who is, you know, actually racist um, and sort of watching these these two people and their interactions as this sort of cat and mouse between them. Once I realized that's what the story is, that's what this is. It's not a heist movie per se. It's a story of these two people, this back and forth between these two people constantly trying to fuck the other one over. That's when I went, Oh, okay. I know what it is. And it, and it told me now how it needs to be done, I guess, for lack of a better phrase. Yeah. Yeah. As long as you're, do, do you remember the first time you saw Chinatown? What your, uh... Uh, yeah, I do. It was, well, it was on video, rented video. Um, so it would have been, and it was in my apartment in Westwood, which would have put it in the, in the, uh, between 1980 and 85. So, yeah. Did, did, it, did I, it hit you then or did you have to see it in a, uh, oh, I thought this is great. I'll never literally remember thinking there is no way I will ever be able to do that. Right. Uh, I, it felt like alchemy that I will never understand magic. And I also remember thinking, oh, it's interesting. I remember thinking this on my first viewing and I actually asked Robert Town about this when I had, when I met him, I said, you do something in Chinatown. Was it on purpose? Like, were you as the writer doing this? It's like every time when a conversation would naturally go to the next question, like, but well, wait a minute, then why? The scene gets interrupted mm. and they have to 
and they don't get to ask it, which just keeps us like hanging. And he said, that was Polanski, actually. He said, initially, I had a lot more like beginning, middle and ends. Right. And he said that was, the, you know, but funnily enough, uh, four days ago, I was sitting with Stephen in um, just in a little screening room he has in his office. And we were going to watch a cut of something, something else. Um, and while we were waiting for it to load up Chinatown, this was in, on on a random channel in the middle of the movie. And we just did that thing, which I do with The Godfather. Uh, and, you know, and there are these films. I'm sure you've got those, too, where you just where if, if you just happen you gotta to watch it, you got to watch it. Stop. Exactly. Yeah. You just suddenly I just we were just staring at it like we were cavemen looking at a fire. And yeah. 20 minutes had gone by. And that to me, that's how I know a movie. I feel like a movie, like to me, the great films, you can, you can join midway and somehow they have this consistent DNA that almost it still engages you because it's firing on every cylinder for, for some reason. The whole chemistry is working. I don't know. Do you, do you find that to be true? Well, some, of, some of my favorite movies, you know, you were talking about how you first started thinking about writing and, and so forth. But for me, it was as a kid, um, you know, my dad and I would go see like Papillon and Papillon sold out. So we like what's playing, you know, at the theater down the street. Oh, Charlie Varick or The Sting or whatever. And you'd walk in and it was like, oh, it started 40 minutes ago. I'd be like, ah, we'll, we'll, we'll watch it and stay for the beginning. And somehow those movies still riveted me. Yeah. You know? Unfortunately, and, you can't do that anymore. The can't do that anymore. Yeah, yeah, you wait five minutes in. and then it would start but, up. But again. now, but now they kick you out of the theater. So but yeah, there's so many, so many movies I love that I started from the middle and then saw the beginning later, you know. Um, well, that was, or, you know, sneaking into the theater days too when you were little. Yeah. You just, like, just sneaking into the movies. That was the thing. Sneaking in one movie. Now we're going to the next movie. That's what the Megaplex was invented for, I thought, you know? Yes. yes. Like, oh, now we're, we're going to spend nine hours at the movies. And, and you only pay for one. And now, here's my one. question, yeah, Ed, right. and I'm, I'm going to judge you harshly if you, if you answer wrong. Uh, <laughs> were you ethical about it? Because I would always buy a ticket for the small indie films. Even oh, yeah. If I was going to go see you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark or whatever. So you make sure that the, the little guy gets the... Uh... I, you know what? I, I would do that sometimes, actually. Uh, because I would pick the movie that I wanted to support. I right. remember. Right. And then buy the ticket to that. And then, you know, I guess, you know, yeah, who knows? Walk out of the others if they were. Yeah, that was also that that feeling of power you felt as at whatever age you were of like, this is not working for me. I am choosing to abandon. <laughs> I am beyond and above these filmmakers because I can walk out and I paid nothing. I win. I <laughs> <laughs> God exactly. Dang. Exactly. Now, see, now I really want to go to a theater and, and do that. You know, well, if, why, if you go to a theater, you should make sure it's playing this particular picture. <laughs> well, that would be one theater in LA, I think. In LA. Uh, otherwise, it'll be on uh, HBO. And uh, here's the irony that hit me when you said that. It's like they're doing it for Academy consideration, and yet probably 99.9% of the people who vote in the Academy are just going to watch a screen or anywhere. Well, that, that, that whole Academy thing, don't get me started. <laughs> I mean, it's such, it's such bullshit. Yeah. I mean, you mean how it's, you mean, you mean how it's administered yeah. and, and, you know, it's, the, it's, it's a mess. It's a real mess. And, and the whole world has changed and these people are still, it's 1958 for them. Yeah. It's interesting how, uh, I have a weird feeling that now that so many filmmakers who even two years ago were saying 
it's not a movie if it's on a streamer are now making big streaming deals. Yeah. And my one in, one in did, particular. <laughs> as as referenced uh, earlier, uh, you know, I remember that meeting that we all had. I felt well for a different conversation, but uh, yeah. Uh, my suspicion is that I bet there's going to be a change in academy qualifying rules soon. Yeah. Yeah. Just because too right. many powerful people are going, you know what? This, this, this is how we're making movies now, by the way, yeah, the world has changed as a, as a, as a film goer, I hate to say this out loud, but for a lot of movies, my experience is better when I'm watching it at home. It just is. I don't have to deal with people on their cell phones or eating. I don't even like people eating popcorn next to me. I, it distracts me. It's too loud. I don't like, I like to see the pure experience. And yeah. spoken like a person in your age group. <laughs> <laughs> well, like well, films. I mean, it's funny because well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean like Lawrence of Arabia, I'll always go see it with a place at the dome if they ever open it again. But yeah, there's certain films like I was, you know, I have a very nice setup here and your movie looked amazing on it. And it was like the perfect situation to see it. We have great sound and all that. But then there's something like, um, uh, you know, in fact, we had the director on a while back, Nobody, which is a hoot, you know, the Bob Odenkirk action movie. And it is, and I say this with nothing but love for the film. It's a much dumber movie uh, than yours. It's it's meant to be. And you're sitting there and you're like, this would be a million times better in an audience. Well, there are, that's what we were saying earlier. There are movies that we want to see with an audience, but for a certain amount of movies, first of all, I see the screen better. It's bigger in comparison to where I'm sitting. And I don't have to deal with people getting up and walking and yeah. making noise. We did screen it at Tribeca in this gigantic screen. And I went, I mean, gigantic. And it was the size of two thirds of a football field is where it was screened for. I mean, it was 675 people spread out, right. you know, for, and it was the other day. And it was, it reminded me of what that experience actually was. And I realized, oh, maybe my sequestering of myself that's happened not just in the last year and a half, but sort of as screens have grown and the theater experience has gotten more expensive and also more sticky and more uh, just inconvenient. Maybe I'm denying myself something, which is an experience that only movies really can give you. And as movies and TV shows are starting to like, I don't even know sometimes whether I'm writing a movie or like a, long movie or a short series anymore and sometimes don't even try to define it you know as that's changed we have to figure out how to make the movie going experience something that is not that is for everyone again and not just for like little art films and giant superhero movies we have to figure it out or it's just all going to be television um i hear three d's then i'm kidding <laughs> yeah, what happened to that? It'll be back hmm. once once we're back in theaters. No, they're still doing three D, uh, you know, um, cartoons and and because uh, they didn't last year. Those things are all in three D because they push a button on the machine and it turns it into three D. It's not like real three D, like shooting it in three D, which I tried once and uh, yes. was, was basically disabused of afterwards. What are you doing? What's the point? Why why why, why do it for real with real you know, two, two, two different lenses and stuff. 
Well, I, I will say, and I, I shouldn't be buttering up my co-host, but but every single shot of the hole is beautifully composed for 3D. It's such a blast to watch. A lot of good it did me. Uh, hey, <laughs> hey, I don't care. It did me a lot of good. That's all that matters, Joe. <laughs> what I want to see in 3D is not, you know, people like pointing a gun at camera so that you see the long barrel of it. Right. What I want to see is actually human interaction in 3D. That's what I would be really interested in. Well, is that's like, what I thought it was good for. I think it's uh-huh. drawing people into the movie as opposed to throwing things at them. But, but yeah. you happen to have a particularly good lens on your, um, on your uh, machine there. So when you stick your fingers out, it really I know, that was like amazing. 3D. <laughs> yeah, 3D. Next up, 3D Zoom calls. Um, oh, no. Well, well, Ed, thank you so Thanks, much. Ed. I think we've broken almost all of our you, rules. Man. I feel like we actually talked about his work. Uh, no, we talked about a whole lot of interesting things that were I'll not go, I'll cut all that stuff. of titles. To uh, Rachel, the PR person, don't worry, I'm going to cut out every reference to the movie you guys are plugging, so this will this will be um, <laughs> She knows. Silent. She's I, watched the show. <laughs> <laughs> but, Rachel, Ed, thank you. Fun, everyone. <laughs> uh, yeah. Great to see you, Joe. Again, you too. Really, uh, really, really a joy. And Josh, much for having me. Oh, no, it was an absolute blast. That's Thanks, blast. Ed. Good luck with the film. Great and, luck with um, the movie. I think yeah. it's going to be a big hit. Check it out. It's out as, now. As, 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 as big a hit as movies can be these days. <laughs> that's, that's right. But it's out now on HBO Max, so um, check it out. Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Stay safe out there, folks. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.